Well, this year, as you, as you remember, last year was the 200th anniversary of the birth of Robert E. Lee. And uh, we had uh, a spectacular exhibition titled Lee and Grant, which is now in St. Louis. Uh, from St. Louis, it will go to New York City, where the uh, New York Historical Society has decided to change it to Grant and Lee. <laughs> I'm, I'm not making that up. They felt if it were the other way around, it might be a little offensive, and maybe our speaker can address that. But our speaker is uh, no stranger to many of you, Robert uh, K. Crick, who grew up in Northern California, native California, and I was asking him today, how did you get interested in the Civil War? And he said uh, a relative gave him a copy of Lee's Lieutenants, which he treasured from the beginning, and he was hooked ever since. Many of you know that for uh, 30 years, he was the chief historian of the Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park. He's the author of uh, 16 books, uh, Stonewall Jackson at Cedar, Valley, uh, at Cedar Mountain, which is one of my favorite of his, uh, Conquering the Valley, which is uh, uh, Stonewall Jackson at Port Republic, and his latest book, which he will be signing today, is Civil War Weather in Virginia, which is an absolutely fascinating topic. And as I mentioned, he has been uh, in heavily involved with the uh, creation of the Marine Corps Museum. Uh, as I say, he's no stranger to most everybody in this room. He's a splendid speaker, and please join me in welcoming Mr. Bob Crick, who will be giving his perspective on Robert E. Robert e. Lee and the historians. Bob? Thirty years after the end of the American Civil War, that is to say, toward the turn of the century, toward 1900, Time and memory had worked on Confederate veterans' recollections of that difficult time. It had smoothed away, time had, some of the sectional rancor, a good bit of the suffering, which was very considerable during the half decade of the war. And time had brightened recollections in retrospect of the 1860s, and it had dulled the recollections of the anguish of the 1860s. Furthermore, by then, the late Victorian era was upon us, and the zeitgeist, the spirit of the time, was very much attuned to romantic imagery, emotive prose. The best two examples of this, and they will be familiar to many of you, might be John B. Gordon, the Confederate general from Georgia, and General Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, the Yankee from Maine. Both of those men wrote right in keeping with the spirit of that times. In Gordon's pages, no soldier on either side ever died in mortal anguish, Instead, always his warrior spirit was freed by a speeding leaden messenger to join his predecessors in Valhalla. No one ever suffers, they just are warrior heroes. Chamberlain's egocentric prose really doesn't leave much room on the stage for anyone but his own self. But when once in a while someone else creeps onto the stage, whether north or south, he's always portrayed as a sort of a medieval uh, jouster in, in friendly competition with his foes. The description of the alleged salute to surrendering Confederates at Appomattox, which has become almost legendary, comes from Chamberlain that now has been debunked, I think, fairly successfully, that it, whether it happened at all. But that, those two men wrote entirely typically of that era. Now, the taste for that style of prose has faded long since. I dare say most of you are not afflicted with that. I certainly am not. Most of Gordon's wondrous tales came under scrutiny as to whether they were true at all, not to say the way they were presented the public. In fact, most of them now, after the passage of time, are holding up. Uh, they are substantial by other means as well. 
I have never been moved by that kind of thing. It put me off. It still does put me off. But you, if you recognize that approach to describing one's difficult time during the Civil War, you'll understand what it was like near the turn of the century. Now, I am, as I continue to be a little bit skeptical about Confederate late-life writing, I will admit that I'm skeptical about veterans' claims with very good cause over the years. I spent a lengthy professional life separating truth from fiction. I began to wonder if I'd become a little bit too cynical about such things when my young son, who's known to many of you, uh, Robert Crick, who's historian for the Richmond Battlefields, he was nine or ten years old. He was helping index the Southern Historical Papers, which we were working on at that point, and he could uh, read pretty well, and he would go look up the obituary and Confederate veteran, and I remember him saying one day with scorn he had inherited from me, I'm sure, that, hey, Daddy, here's another Confederate who was personally promoted by General Robert E. Lee in the last week of the war, but the paperwork was lost during the retreat to Appomattox. <laughs> I only wish I had started 35 or 40 years ago to keep a list of such promotions. In fact, as years passed, men exaggerated somewhat what had happened to them. Rank expanded. The mayor of your hometown, for most of you, Richmond, Virginia, early in the 20th century, I've always admired. Uh, David Crockett Richardson, he was in a uh, Parker's Battery from here in Richmond, which I wrote a book about many, many years ago. Richardson was running for mayor, and he used kind of the reverse snobbery approach. He said, uh, I was a veteran of the Army of Northern Virginia, and from what I can tell now, I was the only private soldier in it. <laughs> and he was elected... Uh, Successfully, Mayor of Richmond, as you probably know, you may recognize his name, and that's indicative of the syndrome, too. My uh, literary and intellectual hero, H.L. Mencken, said in the 1920s, I think very cogently, he said, it is always wise to refer to every adult male south of Wilmington, Delaware, as Colonel, unless you know for sure that he prefers Judge. <laughs> and some of you have seen that. It was said after the war that it was impossible to be elected governor of Virginia if you had all of your limbs. Frederick W. M. Holliday lost an arm at Cedar Mountain. He's always been one of my favorite Confederates. Uh, was elected governor uh, largely on that basis, I guess. Was not a particularly good governor, but I like F. W. M. Holliday nonetheless. The ultimate example of that uh, politics through suffering, through maiming, is uh, Francis T. Nichols in Louisiana. He'd lost, uh, up around Fredericksburg, where I'm from, he lost one year uh, a leg, the next year an arm in another battle, and he was put in nomination for governor of Louisiana later in the 19th century by someone who said, let's elect what's left of General Nichols <laughs> to be governor of Louisiana. <clears throat> but having, having said all of this with some, uh, some cynicism, this is not a Confederate phenomenon. It's not even remotely a Confederate phenomenon, and yet there is an entire body of scholarship and writing which for the last 20 or 30 years has insisted that almost everything Confederates wrote later was part of a conscious conspiracy, the myth of the lost cause, these people making things up as they went along, instead of acting just like every old-age veteran has since the beginning of time. Now, I hasten to stipulate to you that I'm not suggesting because everyone does it, it's a good thing. That's absolutely not true. If there's a complaint window at which one can complain about inaccurate recollections, I will elbow my way to the front of the line and be very shrill indeed. I don't like it, but the fact that it's almost universal ought to put it to some degree into context for you. In the introduction, they mentioned that I had worked for the Marine Corps Museum for four years, which has now been open for a, for a time, and I've joined all of the Marine Corps 
veterans associations and still get their newsletters, and they are absolutely redolent of Confederate veterans. I don't think they tell lies in them, but they concentrate on the good things that happen to them, on their friends. They behave the way men always have. I will give you just one example from my personal life that I think is somewhat apposite to this. I have a whole talk about the comparison between late-life Confederate veterans in World War II and other modern veterans, but I'll give you just this one example. It's about my father-in-law, who was from Richmond, died here in Richmond three years ago, three and a half years ago now. And as he lay dying, he was hard smitten with cancer, and the family rallied round, of course, and one of his granddaughters was a CPA, and that was useful at that point. And of what use is a historian? I asked that rhetorically. Nobody tried to answer that. But uh, <laughs> in this family crisis, uh, my father-in-law had been all across Europe during World War II, and we found the traditional shoebox in the attic in which he had kept a map on which he had marked his way. He became a draftsman later in life, a, a landscape architect. So he had been inclined that way. He drew a map of his route all the way across Europe. There were some photographs in there and some of his um, medals and insignia and so forth. And I thought that my contribution might be to find out what I could about his unit. It turned out he belonged to a very unusual organization. You will have heard many of you a little hint of this from one of those Paul Harvey things. Uh, the rest of the story where he builds things up impossibly high and then has a surprise ending. This was a, the 603rd Camouflage Engineer Battalion to which my father-in-law belonged was the one that had uh, tanks and jeeps made out of rubber in the U.S. and they pumped them up with an air compressor. This was supposed to fool the Germans to the degree they still had aerial reconnaissance. And uh, the unit was full of arty kind of people, people who could do artistic things. One of them, it turned out, was the fashion designer, whose name might ring a bell with about half of you in the audience, I guess, Bill Blass. Have you heard his name? He, be he belonged to this. And uh, I, he'd written an autobiography, which I went to look up. I was going to get that from my father-in-law, but the autobiography is almost all about his post-war life and his various unusual recreational habits in Hollywood and so forth. So I didn't buy it from my father-in-law, but I did find, and here's the point of all of this, I did find a website which a veteran had put up about the 603rd Camouflage Battalion. My father-in-law's role was in the paint shop. One of the things they did was they took a portable paint shop with them all the way across Europe, and the counterintelligence folks would figure out where there might be an enemy agent living or a street that was suspect. And so they would drive jeeps and two-by-fours up and down the street all day, and then overnight they would set up the paint shop in the gymnasium or something, and they'd repaint the bumpers with different insignia, different corps, different army, different regiments, different divisions, and this was supposed to fool the Germans. Well, this is what my father-in-law did, and those kind of, uh, kind, of, kind of clever, they probably did some good. But the website that these veterans, just about as far after World War II as many of the books you read by Confederate veterans were after the Civil War, the website said, historians now agree that the efforts of the camouflage battalion to fool the Germans shortened the war by several years. <laughs> now several, by definition, means at least three. And American participation in the war lasted about three and a half years, as you know. And he goes on to say, and saved at least 100,000 lives. Whether friends or enemies, he didn't say. Now, you, you laugh at that, and you should laugh at it. But it's pretty much entirely typical of men who did something brave and, and uh, involving and desperate at great cost early in their lives. That's the way they're going to react. That doesn't make me happy with what they say. It doesn't excuse them 
but it ought to take away some of the conspiracy theory, and that's my thrust for you today. Uh, tendentious modern historians writing from a tendency insist that this whole rosy glow of the lost cause is a sort of a late-life Confederate thing, that it's somehow unique, and that it is furthermore the product of a conscious, manipulative effort by a defeated people. In this strain, and this is the, the best example I can give for you of it all, in this, in this theorem there, there runs the light motif, actually a heavy motif, I guess, that Lee really wasn't all that popular during the war that he only became an icon when he was carefully created as one after the war to meet the pressing need for a southern hero. And I would submit to you that if you believe that, you'll believe anything. It is just simply, absolutely untrue. The notion of Lee's image as a post-war creation instead of a wartime hero to the South is run, runs through all of the anti-Southern, anti-Lee literature that is now abroad, especially in academic writing. And I would introduce to you here as I contemplate why people do this, one of my favorite philosophical constructions. You all, all have heard of Occam's Razor, probably the uh, medieval, maybe 14th century, 15th century, William of Occam, who was a monk who sat and thought deep thoughts, and he came up with the theorem that the solution to any problem almost always is the simplest one. You've probably heard of Occam's Razor. Well, this is a, this is a 20th century philosophical notion, which is called Handlin's Razor, because a fellow named Handlin postulated it, and when I read it to you, it will sound kind of funny, like uh, something that Mark Twain might have said, but this guy's entirely serious about avoiding getting caught in the trap of looking for conspiracies everywhere. Hanlon's razor, never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity or sloth. <laughs> well, that's kind of droll to say it that way, but before you decide someone really is trying to do a conspiracy, consider the prevalence in the country of people who are either incompetent or lazy. And there seem to be some of them. I drove down the interstate today, and I was behind at least a few of them. <laughs> Many of the folks who write about the lost cause myth are not prone to do research. They're uh, re-articulating the available evidence. But even so, it is hard for me to credit stupidity so profound as to suggest that Lee was not popular during the Civil War. Let me summarize for you this best with three quotes. This is from three different people, none of whom are Alan Nolan, who was the most famous of the Lee debunkers. Not until the 1880s would Lee be regarded as the South's invincible general. It was a post-war phenomenon. Here's another one. When he died on October 12, 1870, Lee was only one of a large number of Confederate heroes. And yet a third. Virginians directed post-war efforts to recast Robert E. Lee as the Confederacy's great hero prompts you to wonder if it hadn't been for all of this manipulative and creative uh, conspiracy, if there wouldn't be a Braxton Bragg monument on Monument Avenue, or perhaps Earl Van Dorn, or Roswell S. Ripley, or whomever, whose thunder Lee had stolen. There is also a recurring anti-Virginian thread in much of this, I would add, but I haven't really time to expand on that. Well, the stunning notion that Southerners only came to revere Lee after the war is eminently easy to reject. There are in this building, in the intelligently arranged and skillfully run Pollard Room, there are probably two or three thousand letters, if you could adduce them all, written during the war by soldiers home, saying that Lee is the greatest man in the world, saying, name the baby who's on the way, if it's a boy, after General Lee. 
or you to go downtown to Broad Street, go on to Chapel Hill, on to Duke, to the other coast, to San Marino, to all of the archives, you could find 10 or 15 or 20,000 of these without too much trouble. Now, I hasten to make another point for you. It is an entirely separate question whether Lee deserved that adulation. Was Lee a great man? Was Lee a great general? Was he an incomparable hero? All of that is extremely subjective. It really is. And I probably can tell by now I'm inclined to think that he was those things too, but that's a separate matter over whether people thought he was during the war, and so many of them said so in a, just almost a cacophony of voices interrupted very, very infrequently, almost never, that to suggest that Confederates did not revere Lee until after the war really is stunning. Let me give you just a phrase or two from those again. Not until the 1880s. It was a post-war phenomenon. And Virginians directed post-war efforts to recast R.E. Lee as a hero. How does one really decide on, on something as subjective as the true facts in this case? Well, it can't be done. Some things are so subjective that you just cannot prove them empirically. A week ago, I was with my family in Yosemite Valley, and in May, the falls are always crashing, and this year was an especially good water year, and standing under those awe-inspiring granite walls with the, the falls rushing over them is just a spiritual trip for me every time. I think it's the most beautiful place I've ever seen. And yet I once, 20 years ago, there was a kind of a distant relative who went along with us and stood at Glacier Point and looked up the Merced Valley, and, and I was ooing and aahing, and my knees were weak, and I, I asked what she thought, and she said, Oh, I don't like it much going out in the bush like this. So, uh, beauty, uh, female pulchritude, male pulchritude, is there such a thing as male pulchritude? Uh, there are a great many things which are so subjective that they can't be defined and we know it. And the matter of what people thought at a given time, however, on a matter as important as this, is actually pretty easy to do. It is an incontrovertible fact. Let me read you just a couple from those many thousands that I could produce for the purpose. Here's an account by uh, perhaps the best single narrator on the Army of Northern Virginia, a hard-nosed Georgian. Wasn't much of a poet in him. He uh, was describing the Great Review when the First Corps of the Army of Northern Virginia, which had been off adventuring in East Tennessee with a notable lack of success, and they had returned to Virginia, and they were about to be reunited with the Army, and Lee rode southwest from his headquarters near Orange down to the Mechanicsville intersection. Now, that's not the Mechanicsville here near Richmond, which is well known to so many of you, uh, where there was, of course, a battle in June of 1862. This is the Mechanicsville that's just west of Boswell's Tavern. If you're driving north on 15 through the uh, Green Springs Valley, when you get to Boswell's Tavern, which I guess is Route 22, Mechanicsville, the center of the First Corps that early spring of 1864, is a mile or two west. And there was a, a, a chance for Lee to get back together with these soldiers who had been gone at this point for more than six months, for more than half a year from the Army on their adventure to East Tennessee. And as Lee rode out to start the review, had his hat off acknowledging the demonstrations, here is a, one description from a participant said, there were tears among the veteran soldiers. What a noble face and head. Our destiny is in his hands. He is the best and greatest man on the continent. Now the quote from Porter Alexander, who, uh, who's the fellow I alluded to from Georgia. He said, 
a wave of sentiment seemed to sweep over the field. Each man seemed to feel the bond which held us all to Lee. The effect was that of a military sacrament in which we pledged anew our lives. That's pretty heavy stuff. It's written a little bit after the war, but not as part of the great controversy, and by a very hard-nosed fellow. A contemporary note from the period of uh, Battle of Chancellorsville, the Chancellorsville campaign. On the 3rd of May, Lee had won his greatest victory at Chancellorsville, and 20 or so minutes after he rode into the Chancellorsville clearing at what I think you would have to judge to be the height of his military career, the bad news came from eastward from the direction of Fredericksburg that the rear guard there under Jubal Early had been swept aside by the federal rear guard under John Sedgwick. They were coming west, and so Lee's great victory might turn out to be something else. And the containing of that drew Lee's attention, and he rode eastward. And on the 4th, Confederates of McClaws' division, Hoke's brigade actually in this case, were about to come up the slope across where the big uh, Home Depot stands now toward where the guest house used to stand. I'm afraid that's the way it is around Fredericksburg in describing landmarks. They were about to come up the slope, and they were uneasy and restless because they knew that McClaws was a very diligent fellow but did not have a lot of flair or dash or creativity to him, had been kind of fumbling. They weren't sure what they were doing. They were much missing a well-controlled hand. And a major from North Carolina, a name York, he's really one of the founders of what is now Duke University, a successful businessman, again, no shrinking poet, but writing in a letter, in, in the form of a letter to the bosom of his family, this is not for publication or anything else, he described what happened as the restless soldiers prepared to attack and they weren't sure there was a controlling hand anywhere, and then they saw Lee on his familiar gray warhorse traveler riding across the crest, and the whisper ran through the ranks. This is quoting Major Richard Watson York. Whisper raced down the line. Lee is here. All will be well. It was as though a god had passed. Now, I don't ask you to endorse the notion that Lee was a god, but I do suggest to you that the existence of this and thousands of other things like it written at the time established that he was, in fact, the Southern hero during the war. And folks who will be so tendentious as to insist, just to satisfy their theorem, that he was a post-war creation, are just plain blathering. <laughs> Let me give you a thought here for a moment or two about how we respond differently to evidence, all of us. We just really do. Every one of us in this room Half of us think one way about things that, not what I'm talking about, but about things in general, religion, politics, philosophy, love. Then the other half, it's as though we're looking through different ends of a kaleidoscope. Robert Stiles, many of you will know his name, four years under Marsh Robert, book published in 1901. He was a University of Virginia graduate. He's very colorful, often quoted. When I was doing an introduction for a new edition of Bob Stiles' memoir, I came across one of his mates at the University of Virginia when he was a young man, and he wrote very glowingly of Stiles. He loved him. He admired him. He was a, kind of a charismatic figure almost, but he said, anytime you read Bob Stiles, this friend wrote, you've got to remember that he's the kind of boy if we went out and saw a flock of sparrows take off would come back to the house and describe the soaring flight of eagles that he had seen. <laughs> and you all have run into people like that, and I don't reject Bob Stiles out of hand for that, but that's kind of indicative of this. 
I was reminded just uh, with my family in California last week, I was with my brother, and I'll give you yet another personal example, something no one would have done in the Victorian age, but it, it struck me how different my brother and I view things. My brother's a, one of the smartest people I know. He was first in his class in high school and college and, and head of his class in medical school, and then he went off to Japan and was the first American to do something complicated in the Japanese language. He's a very smart guy, and yet he and I believe absolutely opposite things about the way the world is run, about our lot in life, and no one could ever accuse him of being dumb. I wouldn't dream to do it. He just responds differently. I hope he's right. His view is far more appealing than my own. I really do hope he's right. But this, this is pertinent, I, I think, here perhaps because it applies to the conspiracy theory and how people re react to things. In art, uh, Gauguin looks silly to me. I know some of you probably think he's wonderful. I like Bierstadt, and I like Bruegel, and uh, the, some of the others are, are too impressionist for me. And yet, lots and lots of people are the other way around. There are innumerable examples you could give like that. You might add also a tincture of thought to the changing styles that have so affected human discourse and interaction over the years. I just read the Southern Churchman publication of the, uh, the church here in Richmond all through the war. I read every issue of that, or at least scanned every issue of that, found some wonderful comments about the spirit of the times, some very good obituaries, and after a while, I grew weary of every obituary talking about this poor fellow or lady dying with Christian resignation. And I started rooting for one of them to fight the Grim Reaper <laughs> and to be unhappy about it. And I expect many of them were, but that's just the, the way things were written at the time. R.E. Lee's death notices. I recently acquired the, um, the various death notices from his funeral in the uh, Washington College Chapel, now WNL, of course. And they are just too saccharine for my taste. I think very highly of Lee. You will have discerned that if you're still awake at this point. I uh, don't object to people feeling strongly about him, but the way this was expressed is just too saccharine for my taste despite agreeing with the general sentiment. And that prompts me to ask you to think about, as you look back at Confederate memory, anything else historical, to try to avoid what seems to me to be the no-win syndrome that applies to some of this. If you were a Confederate in 1870 and wanted to express your admiration for Lee, your grief at his death, uh, your horror at the impact on society of losing the, the leading figure of, for, for the defeated South, how else would you do it, for goodness sakes, but in the patois of the time? And that's exactly what they did. Uh, one, of my, one of my best friends, dear friend of some of you folks in the room, you've heard him talk. I heard him one time uh, get, get really excited about how um, simplistic the antebellum, the Confederate-era Southern mind was, and how they viewed Yankees as all craven and crass and money-grubbing. And, of course, we know that's not true now. Everyone has come to recognize that. But they thought that at the time. And the, the point that made all of this was the fact that the Southern papers, the Richmond, Time, the Richmond Dispatch in those days, uh, the Whig, the Examiner, and so forth, every day they quoted the most recently available gold prices from New York City. Gold was shooting up through the roof. Gold was more and more expensive. They were thrilled about this. And the point here was that the Southerners had such a simplistic worldview about how their society was better, that the Yankees were all money grubbers and maybe gold would finally turn them around. Well, in fact, they did a very good thing to watch gold. War, of course, is not fought with bullets or even with biscuits, as Napoleon said exclusively. It's fought with gold. And as I worked on the Marine Corps Museum, which we mentioned a couple times here, 
I didn't know much about World War I, and I needed to find uh, some quotes, not the facts, the facts are of record, but some quotes, preferably some newspaper headlines. So I looked at the New York Times all through 1917, especially around the time of Bella Wood and Blancmont and so forth, uh, where the Marines were writ large, looking for headlines, and I found some good ones. By the way, the New York Times almost always referred to them as our Marines. Can you imagine the New York Times calling them our Marines today? I rather doubt it. I found some good headlines, but I also found that every day they reported the price of gold in Berlin. And well, they should. Economics being the factor that they are in war and everything else they ought to have. So what about this uh, double whammy, the, the, the double indemnity here, the double standard on this? If, in fact, Confederates had not paid attention to the price of gold in New York, uh, someone who's really working from the tendency about Southerners being simplistic and Southerners needing uh, bright people to figure out what they were up to in those old days would say, this is just further proof of the fact that they're so indifferent to economic things that they ignored it. They're one of the, uh, one of the it was temporarily popular, you still see it sometimes in, in academic writing about the Confederacy. Uh, the South lost through uh, too much states' rights, too much reliance on cotton. There's a whole number of theorems. Well, one of them that came up in the 70s was cognitive dissonance. Have you heard that phrase? They lost because they were the evil empire and they knew damn well they ought to lose subconsciously. So they lost because they wanted to lose because they knew they ought to lose. Well, that's cognitive dissonance. Well, that would apply here. Cognitive dissonance uh, would lead you to ignore the gold even though you ought to. So as you look back at things, you might ask yourself if you're putting someone in a position where no matter what they does, no matter what they do, it serves your pre-existing notion. How would you respond to R.E. Lee's death today, the per a person you admired as much as R.E. Lee? Dramatically, unbelievably differently, of course. As to the question of Lee's ability tactically, operationally, strategically, I have no hesitance in telling you I think he was a great American general, one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest. Some of the things that he did with the numbers that he had were unbelievable. His greatest victory at Chancellorsville I think stands ahead of almost everything else. But I can't really prove that to you. One thing I can tell you is that almost everyone with whom he came in contact during the war came away impressed with his strength of character, his quiet dignity, his intellect, his grace, almost without exception, writing at the time, not constructing uh, a model later. The sole exceptions of any rank were Roswell Ripley and James Longstreet. Now, Longstreet's the only real Confederate leader who passes muster today with the people who don't like Lee, and the reason seems to me to be patently apparent. But the fact that Lee was so generally accepted at face value for his strength of character and his dignity impresses me mightily. There is in this kind of ugly modern age we live in, with its lack of belief in much of anything, uh, you perhaps have heard the saying, the secret of success is sincerity. Uh, once you learn how to fake that, you've got it made. And I, I'm afraid that's probably true. Lee's devout Christian faith also pleased his viewers in the 1860s and beyond. In the eight, 1980s, however, down to the present, Lee's religious faith has been kind of tangentially a linchpin for his detractors. His mid-19th century notions, which are expressed over and over and over again in his letters, about God's importance in his life and his own worthlessness without God's participation in his life, these serve as a text, if you will, for the notion that Lee was insecure, perhaps even manic-depressive. 
This is in the chapter before he became arrogant and insensitive, of course, which doesn't really fit, <laughs> but that's the way it is. In recent years, and as far as we can see into the future, forevermore probably, there will be a really wretched new R.E. Lee biography every six weeks or six months at least, Stonewall Jackson too. Some of them will be good from time to time. Many of them are pro. Some of the worst new biographies based on nothing new at all, no particular perception, are pro-Lee. Most of them are forgettable and mediocre, and some of them are downright foolish, and that brings up to mind yet another saying, history does not repeat itself, historians repeat themselves. But his perceived virtues, Lee's, as a leader post-war in accepting defeat, as well as during the war, has stood a great many generations of Southerners in good stead. Simon Baruch was a Confederate surgeon whose memoirs were published uh, soon after the turn of the century in a, a tiny, tiny edition, so rare as to be virtually unknown. And Simon's son was the noted financier and diplomat, Bernard Baruch, who wrote in the mid-20th century, hearkening back to his youth and his daddy's attitude. The more modern Baruch wrote, I was brought up to believe that Robert E. Lee was the epitome of all virtues. My daddy often quoted a maxim of Lee's as a guide to my conduct and his own, do your duty in all things. You could not do more. You would not wish to do less. The people I admire in the world today are ones who set models of quiet dignity and, and in general give young people watching them, others observing them in the classroom, in the business world, something worth emulating, some quiet dignity more important than almost anything else, it seems to me. I would submit to you in the end that Lee's critics who casually claim that Lee was not even popular until after the war, that he was a post-war creation, have gone full circle. They are expressing disdain for something I disdain as much as anything else in the historical field, and that is people saying something they consciously know not to be true. I just really loathe that. I admire finding things which have verisimilitude, and can be substantiated. I hate people who say things they know not to be true. But in coming full circle, I would submit to you that anyone who says Lee wasn't popular during the war is doing precisely that. Their alternative under Hanlon's razor is to be incredibly lazy and stupid, and I will not de deny them the chance to apply for that palm as well, but I think these people have got to know something about it, and they're being disingenuous. In professing this distaste, I would tell you that the People who write this about Lee actually have done you kind of a service. They've held up for your full inspection their passport into the historical world. If they will tell you a whopper of that size about something which is so elementary to disprove, they've made it easier for you to understand that they probably don't deserve your attention. Now, I don't know why such folk would not simply write that Lee doesn't deserve the respect he had during the war. Who could argue with them then? Well, we can argue. We will argue with them. But in essence, they are providing an opportunity to be disassembled by saying something which is so obviously, egregiously uns untrue. Well, in conclusion, I will not attempt to summarize Lee's impact on the people, the Americans who followed. I will quote from Charlie Rowland, one of my favorite people. He said in a one-sentence summary that R.E. Lee is America's great tragic hero in the classical use of that term, is doomed by the one fatal flaw amongst his cardinal virtues, that of loyalty. Had Lee been precisely who he was, from the first molecule to the last, from the first behavioral pattern to the last, had he been precisely who he was and taken command of the Union Army, he would today be exempt to all of the animadversions that are thrown at him in a politically correct age.
We are right on time, and I, I am told that we have 10 minutes, speaking of animadversions, for you all to, uh, to fling your darts and arrows at me. Questions and answers for 10 minutes. Thank you.